Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Impovia, formerly Change Catalyst. I'm also the author of How to Be an Ally and your host for this show. Allyship is empathy in action. We learn what people are uniquely experiencing, we show empathy for their experience, and we take action. Want to learn more? Visit empovia.co, E-M-P-O-V-I-A.co to check out more of my work. Let's get started. Our guest today is my dear friend, Ritu Basin, who is belonging and leadership speaker, consultant, author, and expert at Basin Consulting Incorporated. She is also the author of the new book, We've Got This, and Unlocking the Beauty of Belonging. Yeah, I love it, actually. So I'm really excited to talk about this book today and the beauty of belonging in general. So welcome, my dear friend. Thank you, dear Melinda. It is so nice to see you. It's so nice to have this opportunity to chat with you and just energetically to be in your spirit. Oh, Oh, thank you. All right. Let's jump in first. Definitely listeners, if they have listened to your previous episode, they have a sense of your story, but maybe you could just give a recap of your story and maybe talk about the journey of moving from the authenticity principle, your first book, to We've Got This as well. You can add that on. Thank you. You know, it's funny, Melinda, I I put up a post on Instagram where I'm very active, just like you, because I know we're always checking out each other's stories. Mm. Yesterday about my first calling, I'm calling her my firstborn, the authenticity principle, who I always have near and dear to me. He's like near and close to me. And I was like, well, I love you, but we have to make room for the second born. And like, there's not going to be any competition between you both. I love you both so dearly. It has been a journey for me to not only write the books, but more importantly, come to a place where I can speak about living authentically and working authentically and cultivating, creating belonging for myself and others. And my passion, my commitment to this really important area of life and of work and play and and more is directly connected back to my personal experiences. And so if you follow me online or have seen me on this podcast before, you'll know a little bit about my journey, which I'll share now, which is that I am the daughter of Indian immigrant parents who came to Canada, which is where I live. I am Canadian now over 50 years ago. And I was born in Toronto along with my siblings. And we had the, had a quintessential child of immigrants upbringing where my parents like left a really nice life, mostly back in India. And I say mostly only because both of my parents were born into the decolonization of India. And in fact, my mom was a displaced person, her family and her they exiled from now Pakistan to flee to now Delhi to build a life and escape from harm. And, and my father's family had done something similar years prior. And so they were born into the experience of India being de- decolonized. And so when they left to build a life here in Canada, they wanted to do this for the betterment of their children so we could have a better life. But also they were leaving behind trauma from based on what was happening in India to them and that had historically happened to my ancestors. And so when they came to Canada, leaving behind a class privilege, 
we were very working class growing up. Like financially, we struggled. It was always top of mind in our household. My parents also experienced relentless racism. We are Punjabi by culture and we are Sikh by faith. When I say Sikh, my faith is called Sikhism or Sikhi. I am a Sikh. It's spelled S-I-K-H. We're, as we try to decolonize language, it's properly pronounced as Sikh and not Sikh. Father was turban, beard, full deal. And so I watched them experience racism, but then I had my own experiences with it, which I'm happy to dig deeper into as we continue on. But I'm the survivor of relentless, traumatic, racist bullying, and it really hurt me. And I didn't realize how deeply it hurt me until I started to do intensive trauma work over the last several years. But I learned from a young age that I shouldn't really be me and that, that, that something is wrong with me. That's the message I, I consistently received. But then I also struggled at home because my parents were also struggling with what cultural identity should they have us become? Like, should we be Indian brown kids living in white Canadiana or should we be embrace more of whiteness? And then sometimes it was like, be really white. Oh my God, slow down. That is way too white. Like we are not a white family. Come yourself. And then on the other hand, though, it was like, now be really Indian. And I, and, and I got a lot of messaging at school about not being Indian. And so I was just really confused. And I took my confusion and my shame about being a woman of color, being a brown woman into the most high conforming profession ever when I chose to become a lawyer, which I initially did because I wanted to do social justice work. But then I ended up in the corporate towers, like the cool kids were what they were doing. I was like, I want to be a cool kid. And I want to make all that coin too, because grew up in an immigrant household. I'm like, what? How much money will I be making? And the things I can buy. And I just got swept up into that tide. And the thing that I found in the corporate world is that the messages around don't be different, be the same as us, dominant culture, were never as direct and as pronounced as when I was a child and being bullied, but they were there. And they were more subtle and nuanced and more micro, but they were there. And because I had already learned to shift cultural codes so effortlessly, and I had already embodied and embraced whiteness and so much of how I was behaving, it was easy for me to continue to do this. And in fact, I got better and better at it. And of course, in doing this, the doors to success opened for me and I did become very successful. But if you had asked me by the time I hit my early 30s, if I was happy in life, I would have said to you, not only am I not happy and materially, yes, I am successful. However, not only am I not happy, I don't know who I am anymore. And a few things happened that led me to commit a life to belonging to myself and to being who I am as much as possible, which is ultimately what led me to leave my legal career after 10 years in the towers to starting my own DEI consultancy, becoming a speaker and now an author and a fierce advocate for belonging and for being who we are. And it really is my message for everyone that that we ought not push down, minimize who we are because of the negative messaging coming our way. We can be beautiful and feel amazing and claim our belonging and as leaders, create cultures where people feel safe to do this.
Mm, thank you for sharing that. I have many questions that I want to go down, but I first think it's important that we define belonging. So let's define belonging. What is belonging to you? So I define belonging based on my work and research in this space. Mm -hmm. I define belonging as the profound feeling that we hold deep within ourselves of being honored and accepted for who we are. And in order to belong, what that means is that we are committed to being our authentic selves. We're committed to sharing what makes us different and unique. But we have to do this first and foremost with ourselves. Mm. We must belong to ourselves in order to claim belonging with others. And in this way, based on this definition, you can see how belonging and authenticity are intertwined because in order to belong, we must be able to be who we are. We must be able to be authentic. And the more we show up authentically, this is what helps us to experience belonging. So they go hand in hand. They are inextricably intertwined. We cannot have belonging without authenticity. And when we are authentic, we have belonging. And this is why both are so important. Okay. So then I do want to get a little bit to your first book, The Authenticity Principle, and talk a little bit about authenticity, especially since you align them so inextricably. I think that is that is really key. And, and a lot of what your new book unpacks is how to get there as well. So uh, what is authenticity? So I define authenticity as the consistent practice of choosing to know who we are, to embrace who we are, and to be who we are as much as possible. But let me break this down a little bit. Authenticity is about the consistent practice of choosing. So it's a practice. It's not a destination. It's not like, okay, I'll do A, B, and C, and I will arrive at the destination called authenticity or belonging, by the way, <laughs> neither of these are static states of being that are permanent. These are destination. These are journeys, not destinations. They're, it's a practice. We do it again and again. The better we get, we develop the muscle. So it becomes easier for us, but it's a practice. And then it's also a choice. So it's both consciously and unconsciously us choosing, deciding to know who we are. And when I say know who we are, for a lot of us, we do actually understand deeply what our preferred ways of behaving are, our values, our needs, our desires. But for a lot of us, and this was my story, I, as I was mentioning earlier, like in my 20s and 30s, early 30s, like I was so used to conforming and morphing and, and changing who I am and curating who I am that I no longer knew who I was. And in fact, I can tell you an interesting story about something that happened to me when I went, when I took a sabbatical and went to India to study yoga. And I'll, I can talk to you about that later. But I, when I say I didn't know who I was, I really didn't because I was, there were so many Rithu personas. But if we're going to live authentically, we need to know who we are. We need to embrace who we are. And when I say embrace, a lot of us know who we are, but then we rail against our identities. We fight our identities. Mm -hmm. We reject who we are. And it's not because we don't actually 
like who we are or love who we are, it's because of judgment and bias and inequities, negative messaging constantly coming our way about our identities that causes us to hold back or resist embracing who we are. But if we're go, again, going to live authentically, we want to know who we are, embrace who we are, and then be who we are as much as possible, person to pers- person, moment to moment, so that we can experience greater connection with ourselves. We can feel more joyful. We can bring this spirit into our interactions with others. And in doing so, and based on my work and research, I can tell you, authenticity is a lot like a magnet. Like The more that I do this with you, the more you'll be inclined to do this back with me. And I can tell you already, for those of you tuning in, I suspect based on what I've shared, if I was with you one-on-one, you would say to me something like, oh my goodness, when you said X, Y, Z, it really resonated. Let me tell you about your life. Why? Because I vulnerably already told you about a lot of my hardships and my shame, my insecurities. And this is what helps us to like create these dynamics, these containers of safety and space for us to share. We build more meaningful relationships. And then from a leadership perspective, from an allyship perspective, from an empathy perspective, this is what helps to create workplace interactions, dynamics where people feel inclusion, they feel Mm -hmm. engagement, they feel empowerment, they experience belonging. And so again, so that's the definition of authenticity. And again, you can see how it's so directly tied to belonging. And that sharing of your own authenticity is is an invitation and a, also the creation of that safe space for somebody to share their own authenticity and that's the the foundations of belonging i love that i love that yeah, yeah. you know uh, melinda i know this will resonate with you deeply and and in both my books i talk a lot about this but in we've got this in particular my my new book i talk about the concept of core wisdom which is the inner knowing we hold around what is my body sensing right now? What's my body telling me? What's in my mind? What's my mind telling me? What do I need to do to calm and settle my mind? What do I need to say to feel empowered in this moment? Our core wisdom is everything. And it really pushes us to be in a place where we dig deep into being embodied, like being really body focused. And the reason why I'm bringing this up in the context of authenticity and belonging, what we've just shared here, in the we, you mentioned the word safety, I mentioned the word safety. At the end of the day, as human beings, we're animals. And what we desperately crave in the presence of others is safety. Well, first of all, we desperately crave being in the presence of others, like even introverts. Mm. And I know that'll probably make you chuckle because I know you and I have talked about this before. I am a raging extrovert. And Melinda, as you've shared in the past, you tend to be more introverted. Yeah. What's the opposite of raging? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. Committed introvert. My sister is a committed (laughs) introvert. She's like, I'm like really committed to it. Love it. (laughs) And so as humans, we we crave being in the company of others, but only Mm -hmm. if we feel safe in the company of others. And in fact, there's so much research coming out right now around loneliness, given the pandemic, even pre-pandemic, yeah. there were there are staggering rates of heightened loneliness in our society. And then the pandemic happens, massive amounts of research around societal loneliness. It's like our nervous systems, our bodies crave acceptance. We crave positive affirmation. We crave love, healthy touch. 
from others. Why? So that our systems can feel safe. And at the end of the day, this is what belonging and authenticity are about. It's the, can I be me around you Mm -hmm. and know that you won't judge me and take opportunities away or take your love and affection away? Can I feel calm and settled in your, in your midst by being who I am so that I can experience belonging, which is about being void of loneliness. And by the way, the last thing I'll mention, because this is staggering, the research around belonging, recent study came out that said the same regions of the brain that are triggered when we're hungry are activated by loneliness. Hmm. Belonging is about the absence of loneliness. It's the, I feel connection. My hunger is quenched because you see me. I see myself. I honor myself. You honor me. And that's what I'm hoping that we can work more in our society to create, to cultivate. Yeah. So the the book is amazing. And when reading it, it has definitely led me down my own path of deep investigation into my past and my ancestors' past and how that impacts how I show up today. And I will say I'm not new to that. And it's an ongoing journey. You know, there's, as you unfold one aspect that you see others as you go deeper, right? And so this book helped me to go deeper and kind of investigating that. And I wanted to ask you, why is that so important? Why that's this is the the book is for those of you who are listening or watching is set up into three different pieces. And the first one is around hurting. It's the longest piece of the book. Why is that so important to investigate? And I will say that also one of the things I noticed when you were sharing your story, you were sharing how you were successful. It seems like that is something that we need to investigate ourselves to. What is success really? What is success? What do we what do we want success to be for ourselves? Is that part of the investigation? Absolutely. So for example, in the book, I talk about this concept that I call our PPPA armor. Hang on, let me say this again. Our PPA armor. That's it. Two P's and an A. Our PPA armor. Mm-hmm. And PPA stands for Positivity, Perfection, Achievement, Armor. And from a young age, I learned to put on that armor, to put on the Positivity, Perfection, Achievement, Armor in order to shield from the biases and the inequities that were coming my way, the bullying, the harm, but also so that I could reflect this image in society that I thought would help me to gain better love and affection. And being positive was all about, okay, like I'm really happy and shiny. Like everything is so amazing, everyone. And I'm just a breath of sunshine. And I was just emanating positivity, even when I didn't feel this way. That was like a bit of the armor. I also was all about being perfect because if I was perfect, then people would not judge me and they wouldn't take opportunities away. In fact, they give me the the opposite and be like, there's, you're not going to judge me if I'm perfect. And then achievement in particular was the one that was deeply entrenched because I would say like, I've largely shed the positivity aspect. In fact, oftentimes I feel, feel like I'm walking around as the crankiest human being ever. And it's like, oh my God, like, can you like put some, like project some sunshine with you? Okay, fine. And then also perfection, I I really have made a massive dent in, in that. But the achievement piece from a young age, while my classmates were tormenting me with the bullying, 
the teachers liked me because I did well in school. I was a nerd. I was really smart. Mm -hmm. And as long as I was achieving, the teachers liked me. My parents were all over my great grades. And so I felt like love and affirmation for them. So from a young age, I learned that I should constantly be achieving in order to, to gain love and affirmation. And along the way, I internalized achievement equals success. External forms of affirmation equals success. Money, awards, mentions in the media. This is before social media, but even now, followers. That equals success. And it is. it has taken me a long time to unlearn that messaging around what it means to be successful and create new definitions of success for myself that are deeply rooted in joy that comes from connecting with myself and connecting with my personal power. And in, in fact, let me draw another, draw a line to something else that I talk about in the book. I talk about the difference between personal power and social power. Social power is about the clout, the affirmation that we get by virtue of our identities that society gives value to. It's externally determined. It ebbs and flows based on context, environment, situation. And it's largely tied back to these def capitalistic definitions of success that we're talking about. So I connected success with social power growing up, which makes sense because I was being tormented by my personal identities. And I thought, well, like, and, and, and I had capitalism swirling around me. Over time, I, what I realized is social power doesn't actually lead to joy. It doesn't actually lead to this kind of success that causes us to be happy and healthy and anchored in life. It's personal power. Personal power is about the inner strength we grow and we develop by building our core wisdom. So relying on our bodies to become more regulated and safe and still and peaceful to filling our minds with positive narratives and a positive affirming thoughts, to have a deep anchoring in who we are. We're knowing who we are. We're embracing who we are. We're being who we are. We're using our voice in moments of disrespect. We're using our voice to help others who are experiencing disrespect. It's about allyship. It's about empathy. And so personal power for me now, I now understand, is what success is about. My, having heightened core wisdom is what success is about. So it's a really long explanation to the importance of redefining success. But why don't I stop there? I also, I do want to speak to the ancestral point, but let me just stop there because I, I'm, I'm wondering if what I'm sharing is resonating with you. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say that over the last couple of years, my my coach, my therapist have both been working with me on that aspect of success that revolves for me around external validation, which is a piece of this that that we have been taught through our ancestors, through the people that brought us up, kind of how to navigate the world. And 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 then we're taught from other people as we as we grow and and change and and we evolve over time. But there are a few things in that that I think that that your book really reminded me of or made me investigate deeper, which is that personal power is in defining the internal validation. The this 
is, you know, I don't need, you know, when I'm, when I'm speaking to a thousand people, I don't need everybody to come up to me and say, you were brilliant because I know that I change lives. I can see it and I know that it, that my work makes a difference, right? I don't need that external validation. I will also say that another thing that, that came up for me was I realized in reading your book that I learned a lot about how to navigate trauma, how to navigate being shut down repeatedly, partly trauma, right? By using shyness, like there's a difference between introversion and shyness, right? And 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 I was everybody always said I was shy. I started to internalize that I am shy. That became a part of who I am. But as I'm growing up, I'm like, wait a minute, am I shy? Am I shy or is that just a protection, right? And so that is, I think, one aspect of the why. The we need to investigate how something in my parents' lives kind of brought that into how they raised me. And as a result, I define myself as shy. Yeah. And how that then I navigate the world through decades thinking of myself as shy. I can't do this. I can't do that because I'm shy rather than really letting go of that and deciding who I am and, and that it's not defined. I am not defined by those, the external, external people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my heavens. Like, Oh, Melinda. So first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I just want to honor your vulnerability in, in, in naming this. And I'm sure for all of us tuning in, like what you're saying is resonating in some way. For myself, a few things are coming up. So let's talk about trauma a little bit, shall we? Because mm -hmm. it's an area that we're starting to talk about more and more in the workplace. I think it's critically important because I often will say workplaces are a microcosm of the greater macrocosm, which is society. And whatever's happened out there is showing up in the workplace. And who we are in our real, actual lives is who we are, what we bring into the workplace as well. And so a few things. I, if you had told me as a child, or like, let's say in my, like, let's say 25 years ago, when I was in my early twenties, if you had said to me, Rithu, you have experienced a lot of trauma. I would have said to you, I don't even know what you're talking about, first of all. <laughs> and secondly, that is a really heavy word. That's what happens to people who are in car accidents or have really horrible, violent things happen or are attacked by a bear in a forest. Like that's not what happened to me. And now what I can tell you 25 years later is, wow, I experienced a lot of trauma growing up. Mm -hmm. My experiences with childhood bullying were deeply traumatizing and had a profound impact on my identity. I also now know from studying trauma that I was born with the effects of the trauma that my parents experienced going through decolonized India, the guy I mentioned, my mom was literally a displaced person. In fact, my uncle, her older brother, my cousin tells me, will wake up now. He's in his 70s, wake up from nightmares screaming, they're coming to get us. They're coming to get us. So I can't. And my mom was in vitro when a lot of this was happening because she was a newborn when her parents exiled. And so I'm wondering, we know increasingly from trauma studies that trauma is genetically passed along through DNA imprints in the egg, sperm, and amniotic fluid. 
And so, and we're learning more and more. So we know that trauma can be passed along genetically, generation over generation. And then there's the intergenerational transference of trauma as well, in that we experience trauma as a community and as families, and then as communities, and then we pass the impact of that along in conditioning Mm -hmm. and in addition to genetics. And so I didn't know this growing up, but now that I know this, it makes so much sense to me because the massive amount of pain that I feel in my body, anguish, stress, tension that I feel in my body when I hear about people's experiences with oppression feels to me to be much bigger than what's happened to me in my own life in addition to what I've experienced. And I think the more that I have dug deeper into not only doing my healing work by through talk therapy and other mind-based strategies for healing. So I do a lot of journaling. I do a lot of meditation. I use a lot of affirmations and mantras. I do a lot of self-coaching, like all mind-based. But the more I've anchored into, okay, release the pain from my body by doing body work and by doing yoga, but by also by allowing, by crying, like energetically discharging the trapped stress, because trauma is about the dysregulation of the nervous system and energy trapped in our bodies and letting that energy out, whether it's crying or shaking or twitching or pulsing or dancing in a way that isn't controlled, but I mean, like literally letting the music and the drum beat take you over rhythmic, like allowing myself to release that, all that tension and energy. The more I do this, the better I feel spiritually mind, mind in my mind, in my body, in my spirit, all of it. So that is so critical and important as it relates to healing and is directly what core wisdom is about, which is what I talk about. And we've got this, but now let's take it back to these negative messages that we've internalized around who we are. So Melinda, you mentioned shyness for me in the last chapter of the book, I I call it, there's nothing wrong with me and there never was. And the reason that language is so important to me is because I grew up believing that something was wrong with me because I am a, I am an opinionated, loud, feisty, vocal, sassy, brown woman, brown girl, and the intersectionality of all my identities screamed, you don't get to be that way. And actually, there's something wrong with you. You're difficult and you're hard to deal with and relax yourself and calm and blah, blah, blah. And so I just always thought no one wanted to be my friend because I was unworthy and that I was flawed. And it has taken me years and years of self-work, but it wasn't until I started to do more of the deep, deep body-based healing work and build my core wisdom through an embodied lens, like being somatic, being body-focused, that I now deeply believe to my core that there is nothing wrong with me. There never was anything wrong with me. What was wrong is this: these systems out there that were used to hold me back and have me believe that something was wrong with me. And then all my elders, like from my parents to my family, other senior community, family members, to leaders, to teachers, 
to media, people in the media, like all the elders out there that had an imprint on my life, they too affirmed that something was wrong with me because they are part of the same system that's broken that taught them that something is wrong with people who have attributes like me. And they peddled that to me. And of course it was reinforced. But now that I can see and feel that, wow, F that noise, the system is broken and I am amazing. I feel much more at ease. And that ease, by the way, not only helps me to experience greater belonging with myself, but it helps me to claim belonging in situations. Like I put this up on Instagram all the time, like situations I find myself in where someone disrespects me or speaks poorly in to me and how they're interacting with me. And I'm like, and I am ready with a response and I'm ready to say, no, 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 you don't. No, you don't. But also we're talking about empathy and allyship. It's like, because I'm more regulated, I'm more mindful of interrupting my biases. So I'm like, I want to be love forward, not judgment forward. When I do hear myself engaging in bias, because I do, I'm human and this will be a lifelong journey. That when I hear the biased thoughts or the judgments, I can more readily access them and then work to interrupt them. And I'm constantly like, why are you saying that about that person? How, what's another way to look at it? How is this moment actually reflecting their pain? Mm. How are they hurting? Because this is not because they're evil. This is coming from a place that they're hurt. And what can I do about mm-hmm. this? And so, I, you know, I think that healing our trauma, healing our wounds is so important, not only for our individual joy, personally and professionally, but also as it relates to allyship and being a leader and creating workplace experiences and a society when we are more regulated, when we have done our healing work, where we help others to heal. And we Mm -hmm. also get out of the way so people can heal and they can flourish. And I, I, so I just, I think it's so important. This, this aspect of our discussion, Melinda, to me is like just so important. As you can tell, I'm like very passionate about it. Yeah. I I think it's really, really important for the people that are doing the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, any leader, any, anybody who's leading teams also to do that investigative work for the reasons you stated. And also because we can recognize the same trauma in other people. And I will, and let me just kind of draw a line here with my shyness that I talked about. Yeah. So my shyness comes from the trauma of being bullied, of being shut down repeatedly. My voice told repeatedly that my voice is either doesn't matter or that it's wrong. It doesn't work. You should sit in the corner and be quiet. And throughout my life, and and it took me a long time to, I mean, huh, suddenly I, I get on a stage and I have stage fright. Why would that be, right? That is, that's that past trauma. And I look back now, because of your book, I sort of look back at my the female ancestors, my women ancestors, my grandmother, my mother. And I realized that there's a, a thread of shutting down their voices, right? It's not just me. It is generational that women have shut themselves down. They've shut down who they are and conform to their relationship with their husbands as being kind of what defines them. And not until much later in life, I saw my mom kind of come away from that. But it, it, for a good portion of her life, she was defined by somebody else. And so that that thread of your ancestry is critical to this investigation. I think that is really a really important piece of it is recognizing how 
that impacts who you are so that you can investigate whether it's who you really are, who you really want to be. Yeah. I love that so much. Melinda, thank you so much for reinforcing this idea. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I focused so much on the concept of hurting and why that section of the book is longer. Mm -hmm. Because it's, I feel like oftentimes we don't spend enough time getting to the bottom or the roots of why we hurt. And, And let me directly connect this with leadership, because I think this is extremely important, especially as it relates to teaching about leadership. It's like, I think the approach we have historically taken is here are the skills, leaders learn these skills, get better at these skills, go and practice these skills. And what, and which is fine. And I get why we do it. However, what's not happening is leaders, what, what's getting in your way of accessing these skills and making these skills work for you? And what's the barrier, the block for you? And like, I think about, for example, when we hear about leaders who don't practice empathy in the workplace. And for that reason, it's harder for them to be serve as allies, or for that matter, leaders who are really insecure and their insecurities show up by way of sabotaging the career paths of their colleagues, or who are harder, really hard on their team members and without seeing the vulnerability of the human experience. And I think back to, okay, if as a leader, we could go back and understand what happened to us as children And what were those key messages that we internalize from a young age that now impact who we are as people, but also how we lead? We could not only work to heal those aspects of our woundedness so that we could be feel healthier as people, but it would also serve from a leadership perspective. And so let me give you a a good example from my own life. I mentioned earlier the PPA armor being an issue for me, the positivity, perfection, achievement armor. And for me in particular, achievement being tough, I can tell you that I have really high expectations of myself to constantly achieve because of my childhood stuff around using that as a shield. It shows up in how I lead because my expectations of my team members is also really high. And on the surface, it doesn't look, it doesn't look like as though it's as negative as someone who is being mean or belittling their team members, which visibly is offensive as a leader, but having really high, unreasonable expectations of your team members also isn't great because they constantly feel pressure to be succeeding and achieving and churning, and it can be exhausting for them. Now, the more I have done my work to heal and build my core wisdom and also undo this negative messaging and and put less and less pressure on myself to achieve... Of course, that's what I'm doing with them. And I'm exercising more empathy and understanding as it relates to you're not well, you have a lot of on your plate personally, you're not going to be able to produce as much. That's fine. And so as leaders, it's so critical that we understand why we hurt because if we don't, it will show up in how we lead. Mm, Absolutely. I want to touch on something that's, I think, really important for our audience in particular is that you talk about a lot in terms of healing. You talk, um, you share some practices, some indigenous healing practices, some ancient healing practices. And I know that a lot of listeners and watchers are aware of the conversation around yoga and in particular and cultural appropriation. So can you just share when and how is it okay to participate in these practices if you are not a part of that culture? Yeah, absolutely. So, and I share this with you as someone who, I I love the reference to yoga as someone who 
comes from the culture that created yoga, who also has studied to teach yoga, but also cares about DEI, but also cares about wellness and wants the world to enjoy and experience practices like yoga. And so in the book, I talk a lot about, again, building our core wisdom, the inner knowing that helps us to understand what we're thinking and feeling, sensing it in our body, helping ourselves to settle and the body and, and mind and release whatever tension we're feeling so that in that place of stillness, we can make better decisions. We can use our, our wisdom as an anchor in everything that we do, including standing in our power and claiming our belonging. And the way we build our core wisdom is largely through a lot of the ancestral traditional practices of our cultures, indigenous cultures, cultures from thousands of years ago on every inch of this planet knew how to heal our bodies and minds and build our core wisdom. There are ancient historical traditional practices from every culture around this world that we could be leveraging. Now, the problem is the way in which we do it. Are we able, the question is, are we able to use other people's cultures, other ancestral, other ancestral practices from cultures outside our own to heal? And my answer would be yes. Yes, you can. However, the way in which you do it is critical. And so we want to prevent cultural appropriation. And the way in which we do this is when we avail cultural practices, healing practices from other cultures, we learn about the practice. We understand the traditional roots of it. We do our self-study to learn about the cultural root of it. We honor the cultural root of it and the tradition by talking about that aspect, not sanitizing. We do it by way of giving thanks and appreciation, not co-opting, capitalizing, monetizing, sanitizing, white-splaining, mansplaining, et cetera, et cetera, the practice. And so I want, for example, for the world to use, enjoy yoga, but I want it to be done in a way where there's equal access to it. It is no longer monetized to the way it is that we are using the traditional roots, language descriptions to explain that we talk about its history, its creation, its evolution that we teach it in full. So it's not just about the asana practice, which is the postures, that it's a holistic way of life that we're teaching and so much more. For me, that's what it means to use someone else's historical, indigenous, and ancient culture without appropriating. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's talk about belonging, then claiming your belonging. You've You've touched on it. I love it so much that that concept of claiming your belonging and it's hard, right? It's difficult and and we need to do a lot of work to get there. And part of that is standing in your power. Can you talk through what we need to do to make that happen? What does it look like to claim your belonging? Yes. So claiming your belonging is all about honoring yourself for who you are and accepting yourself for who you are. And expecting and requiring that people do the same with you in your interactions. In order to make this happen, we want to develop our core wisdom because this is what will cause us to feel calm and regulated or as settled as possible in situations when 
the wind is knocked out of our sails because yet again, someone mispronounces our name or speaks over us or ignores us or we experience a form of inequity in our interactions or hard things happen to us. But also, it's what causes us to stand in our personal power. So when I say stand in your power, I'm talking about not stand in your social power, which again is about external external forms of validation. I'm talking about stand in your personal power, which means believing in your worth, which means knowing that it is important for you to use your voice to correct someone when they mispronounce your name or when they say something that didn't feel right to you, or when they step in front of you in a line, or when you have shared an idea and someone else shares it three minutes later and they are co-opting your idea. And when you said it, you didn't get any recognition, or it's about you speaking without sanitizing or anglicizing your accent. It's about you wearing your hair, however you want to wear your hair. It's about you talking about who you love and who you're intimate with without fearing judgment. It's about you wearing a skirt if you want to wear a skirt, regardless of your gender identity. Like this is what it looks like to stand in our personal power. And this is what belonging is about. Every time we do something that honors who we are and affirms our authenticity and makes us feel good, we are claiming our belonging. And in fact, I w- this is really important. After today, I want you to start to explore and become really familiar for yourself about what belonging feels like for you. And so, you know how sometimes we're in these situations where it's like, I should speak. And it's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable speaking. And I just don't feel confident. And I feel like an imposter. And I'm like, in my head doubting. And I just feel so uncomfortable. And it's like, I just feel really off. And it's like, I don't have a word to describe it because it's all of what I just shared. That feeling is a lack of belonging. So Mm -hmm. after today, I want you to recognize that when that is happening to you, whatever it looks like for you, that feeling, it's a lack of belonging. But the the inverse is true as well. When we're in situations where we feel like we're in flow, like today with me and you hear Melinda speaking, like where I'm I feel comfortable to just share and I'm not sanitizing. And I mean, I mean, I'm not cussing. I like to cuss. I'm not cussing. But aside from that, you can cuss. It's okay. Thank you. I should have told you that at the beginning, but. Oh, amazing. Maybe I'll I'll slip one in before we wind down. But where we feel really good and we feel seen. And even when we're like, oh my goodness, I'm being so vulnerable and this feels hard. It still feels really good to do. That feeling is belonging. So Mm -hmm. after today, I want you to become familiar with what does it feel like in my body when I'm belonging? How can I make this happen more and more? So what do I need to do or say, or what do I need to tell myself or what do I need to do to my body? Like it might just be putting your hand on your heart. It might be putting your hands together. It might be taking a deep breath. It might be rubbing your fingers. It might be saying to yourself, Ritu, you've got this, you've got this, you, whatever it is that you need to do so that you have more and more of that flow feeling of belonging and then the inverse, like when when we're la- when it's lacking, it's the what do I need to do to my mind, body, and soul in this moment to bring me into that state of belonging? This is what I hope for all of you after today. I love it. That was my last question, second to last question for you, which is what action would you like people to take? So everyone, you have that action to explore what belonging feels like for you and then how you can do it. 
how you can do it more and more and to get, if you're not there to get to a place of being there, what do you need to do? What actions do you need to take? So where can people learn more about you and your book? Bless. First of all, I'd love for you to connect in with me on LinkedIn and follow me on Instagram. You can join the We've Got This community, our growing community at RithuBasin.com. And then most important for me right now is for you to order my new book, We've Got This. I To say that I am hopeful for the impact that this book can make would be an understatement. And also, I just am so grateful because, Melinda, I know you know this. We've talked about this before. Writing this book changed my life because it has given me more freedom and that personal power to be more of who I am and experience belonging. And I'm just so grateful. So, and let me also add as a woman of color author, it is really hard to put books out. And the most important thing you can do to support me is to order my book. So I would love that. Thank you. Awesome. And then once you get the book, review it on Amazon and whatever, wherever you purchase it too. Yes. Excellent. Thank you, Ritu, for putting this work out there for all of us to heal and to claim our belonging. Thank you so much, Melinda. And I just want to say I am grateful because in your presence, I experienced belonging. And that is a gift. So thank you. Likewise. Likewise. All right, everyone, take action. And we will see you next week. Thank you for being part of our community. You'll find the show notes and a transcript of this episode at ally.cc. There you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter with additional tips. The show is produced by Impovia, a trusted learning and development partner offering training, coaching, and a new e-learning platform with on-demand courses focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You can learn more at impovia.co. That's E-M-P-O-V-I-A dot co. Allyship is empathy in action, right? So what action will you take today?